Assalamu alaikum. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome everybody. Aid Mubarak. I think today's the third day, so we like one more few hours of Aid left. Um, so I hope everyone had a really beautiful Aid. Alhamdulillah. It was we, we had um, you know a, a wonderful gathering of our community here, and so we felt very blessed. And the good thing is that we have been praying a lot of prayers together for Palestine. Obviously, it's on everyone's mind. We've been doing special Kumut prayers. So if you have found us like live online, like, you know, 1130 at night or whatever, um, we felt it's sort of the least that we can do considering what is happening and just seeing the stories have been just so heartbreaking. But um, I think we're going to probably continue to do that. So if you can join us, um, it, you know, you'll again, if you're subscribed to our YouTube page, you'll get an email when we go live and then you can you can jump on there and, and join us. Um, we if and, and you know, the professor, if you haven't watched the khutbah from yesterday, well, first I want to give a shout out. The, the Aid khutbah was amazing, so definitely watch that. I got some feedback that that was the best khutbah they'd ever seen, um, which, you know, is really powerful. Um, but the one from yesterday I thought was particularly special, and I know we've been getting a lot of feedback about it because I think that, you know, finally the truth about what is going on has been said, the unspoken truth about what is really driving the Israel-Palestine conflict. And the professor in his own way, as you know, was very vocal and very, um, you know, just, I mean, there's no words other than it was extremely, you know, powerful and cleansing to hear the truth being spoken. Um, and we're trying to share a lot of that on social media and um, the thing that I guess has been very interesting is that we have been learning that a lot of social media posts on Palestine have been suppressed. Um, and so, you know, clearly um, that is a huge problem. I know some of our own posts that we've been spreading that have very powerful quotes about Palestine are not getting nearly the same number of views. Like it's it's significantly dramatic where it's not just, you know, a coincidence, but we've been hearing that also from other social media places. So it's really incumbent upon every single person to share whatever they can about the truth about Palestine. Um, we're gonna be cutting more quotes from the khutbah yesterday and just doing everything we can because I think that, you know, social media and the internet can be, um, you know, a really wonderful, um, leveling of the playing field, especially when you're up against, you know, giants with a lot of money and a lot of power and a lot of influence, which is basically everybody in the world. But I feel like what we have is, is a very powerful message, and we have, you know, a lot of truth that can boldly be shared. And I hope that the professor's example will be an inspiration for other people to come forward and say what needs to be said. So, you know, there's a lot of um, uh, ammunition, a lot of... Um, you know, just very powerful, um, visceral truths that were expressed. And I think that that can touch the hearts of people. Um, and, you know, it was focused on the notion of racism. And it's obviously a really important topic that has so much application. And I hope that people will recognize the racism that's taking place that is allowing people to not see the Palestinian situation um, in its proper context. So um, we are very fortunate um, in our community here in, in the present group um, to have uh, two people of Palestinian descent um, and people who have families that, you know, are, are still in Palestine. 
um, and people who are very active. Um, we had a protest here outside of Ohio State University um, yesterday, and so we asked um, Jenna, who um, went and, and was part of that protest and has done other, pro you know, other activist, um, very important work, um, to come talk about you know, the situation, anything that she would like to share um, that, you know, will help inform us and be better advocates um, to articulate what's happening and just to let us know, like, how, how it went, you know, with the, just how, what, she, what she's experiencing, maybe, you know, feel free to share anything. Um, and so we're, we're really grateful for that and just ask that, um, you know, you continue to keep Palestine in your prayers. Also, if Jen, if you know of any good, um, I know we've gotten questions about where are good places to donate to support Palestine, then if you can share that, that would be great. And we'll, we'll definitely share that in our social media and, and what other, other avenues we have. So um, hopefully um, that would be very helpful. So Jenna, please come. Yeah. Um, if my voice cracks or anything, as Grace said, I was at the protest, so it's you know, not doing its job as well as it usually does. Um, I really appreciate the fact that I've been given the opportunity to speak about this because <clears throat> um, the only way that you can combat narratives, as we've learned in sorts of plus us and people who spin lies and they, you know, PR and propaganda is by speaking truth to power. Um, I feel infinitely blessed to be in a space where people are talking about true things and are talking about justice and are talking about um, dismantling ethno states that are premised on the concepts of ethnic cleansing and genocide. Um, I think it's really important to note that today is the Nekba. So the Nekba, um, is a moment, well, it's an ongoing moment, it's hard to say that, but um, the Nekve is commemorated on May 15th, um, and it marks the 70, every single year today, marks 73 years of um, Israeli occupation. And uh, what's interesting to know is that between 1947 and 1949, over 700,000 Palestinians were forcibly removed from their homes, and it was a forced exodus. And when people say that the Nekba is ongoing, they're talking about a consistent method and a consistent um, effort to remove Palestinians from their homelands. And when I personally say that the Nekba is ongoing, it's not just about a forced displacement and a forced removement, it's about daily life under the occupation. And the daily life under the occupation is exceedingly violent. Now, the unfortunate reality is that we often only hear about Palestine when Gaza is being bombed, or we hear about Palestine when there's an attack on the Aqsa. But the day-to-day -day life of Palestinians is exceedingly violent. You know, when we use words like conflict, or we use words like, you know, the crisis, or we use words like war, or we use these types of words, it's so important to be extremely precise about what words we're using and the reason people use words like genocide or the reason people use words like ethnic cleansing and particularly words like apartheid is because those denote a very specific action that is being taken. Conflicts, wars, crises, they indicate almost like a lack of culpability. They indicate that there are multiple, you know, evenly matched sides. They indicate that people have equal force in responding to things, and that's not the case in the slightest. When you talk about Gaza in particular, and I think it's really important to talk about Gaza as it operates within Palestine and outside of Palestine. So most of the, you know, inhabitants of Gaza to begin with aren't native Gazans. They were people who were already displaced 
after 1967. So that's the people of Gaza. Gaza was a fishing community. Gaza was an area in which people went to vacation. Gaza was considered an oasis on earth. Gaza was considered heaven. And Gaza, as it's been created because of the blockade on one side from Israel and the blockade on the other side from Egypt, is now reduced to seven miles wide at its largest point. So between four to seven miles wide at its largest point and 25 miles long. When you have an area that is that small and that densely populated, you are working within a system that is an open-air prison. Gaza is systematically bombed consistently and there is no place to hide. And so when we talk about places like Gaza, we have to also consider them, you know, the first time that I went to Palestine was in 2011. And it was immediately following Operation Cast Lead, in which 1,400 Palestinians were killed within the span of 22 days. 1,400 Palestinians were killed between the span of, in the span of 22 days in an area in which there is nowhere to hide. People constantly talk about things like Hamas. Hamas is a product of its environment. We need to stop allowing people to switch the narrative and mix the conversation up by acting as though Hamas is equal in power to the Israeli government or equal in power to the IDF. These things by no means are equitable and you're doing Palestinians like an injustice by excusing the IDF action by saying, well, if Hamas wasn't doing that. Hamas is a product of its environment. And if we're, you know, I'm an attorney, so my head immediately goes into that regard. If we're strict on terms of international law, occupied peoples are allowed to resist by any means necessary against an occupying force. And so again, it's important to learn these things and it's important to be able to combat them because outside of combating them, we're completely feeding into the narrative. Um, in terms of the Nakba, I think it's important if you have Palestinians around you or you know Palestinians, learn their stories. Learn the fact that when we say that the Nakba is ongoing, every single Palestinian that you meet in the United States, the likelihood that their family hasn't experienced some aspect of the Nakba is extremely low. Almost every Palestinian I know has a Nakba story, and the unfortunate reality is that they're not rare. They're not rare in any regard. Like my personal Palestinian story, my parent, my paternal, my maternal grandfather was kicked out of Palestine in 1948. He's from an area called Ain Karim. That home is currently occupied by Moroccan Jews. It, none of the structure has changed. It is exactly the same, and we are not allowed to return. The, at the moment in which my grandfather was kicked out of Palestine, it was right after the Deir Yassin massacre. Deir Yassin was one of the worst massacres that happened in the formation of Israel, and they absolutely decimated an entire village, killed men, women, children, left them in the streets, and then started parading their bodies around and drove through the streets with speaker phones and told people, run before what happened in Deir Yassin happens to you. People weren't sure that this was going to be a long-term event. And in relative history, 73 years is not a very long time. We are, you know, I'm reminded personally as a Palestinian who's 27 years old, how this is within the course of my grandparents' lifespan. And my oldest grandparent is 92 years old. She's older than the state of Israel. And so when Palestinians ask you to amplify their voices, it's because we see an end in sight. And I know often things start to feel hopeless. And, you know, but one of the, you know, initial spokespersons, and I believe the first Prime Minister of Israel, Ben Giron, is constantly um, affiliated with this quote in which he said that in terms of the Palestinian problem, um, the old will die and the young will forget. The old will die and the young will forget. And I'm not, I'm pretty young and I haven't forgotten. And a lot of our old haven't died yet. And so, you know, it's imperative when Palestinians on the ground in Palestine ask you what to do that you answer their calls. I think sometimes as a member of the diaspora we get really emboldened 
about thinking that we know what's best for Palestinians. Palestinians know what's best for Palestinians. Currently, we have Gaza being bombed. The Israelis have bombed the uh, offices that Al Jazeera and the Associated Press are in. They're completely trying to make, create a media blackout. And obviously what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah for people who weren't even originally, like they, these are already displaced people who are living in Sheikh Jarrah and are attempting to be displaced once again. They have asked very clearly for us to, like what to do. The donations that people are collecting currently are for medical costs and they often have to deal with medical costs in Gaza and medical costs in, um, from the attacks on Al-Aqsa and primarily to like what's happening in you know, occupied Palestine in 1948 proper. But what Palestinians are particularly asking, they're particularly asking for you to amplify their voices. They're particularly asking you to switch the narrative. They're particularly asking you to apply pressure on your representatives. These types of things matter. And I know sometimes because we have so many causes that are consistently happening that we just feel like, okay, well, our, you know, we're spread thin already. We don't know what to talk about. Like, if I, does it really matter if I talk about Palestine when this is happening in Afghanistan and this is happening in Sudan and this is happening in Syria and this is happening in whatever? It matters. It matters just as much to amplify those causes as it does to amplify Palestine. But right now we're riding momentum. And it's very rare that Palestine is in the media as consistently as it has been. And I just urge all of you to take note of that moment and amplify it and truly like make dua for them. Keep them in your, you know, keep them in your du'as. Like, home and I, I make dua every single day that this crisis I don't I can't see that the problem is we even have to dismantle our own like our own our own words our own thinking but I I pray that this siege on Gaza and this occupying force in Israel comes to an end within my lifetime and if that has to happen you know by the time that I'm 80 then that happens by the time that I'm 80 but I know that the work is consistent the work is constant and the work has to happen for people who are listening to Palestinians on the ground that's all Thank you so much, Jenna. That was really powerful and, and so important. Thank you for, for sharing that with us. Um, and again, we, we will um, share some sites for donation um, on our social media. So if people um, can donate, please do. Um, and if anyone you know wants more information, reach out to us and we can also connect you to the right place. So thank you again. That was fabulous. Um, okay, well, with that, I'm looking forward to another incredible surah, surah al-Isra, which is obviously an extremely weighty surah. The sheikh has been preparing with very little sleep, as usual. Um, and, um, you know, we, we have always felt that every surah, as it is selected and presented to us, has a very important purpose to play. So I'm really looking forward to seeing um, what, we, what we are going to be told <laughs> and learn. Thank you. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Inshallah, today's surah is Surah Al-Isra. Um, before we start, I don't know if, if you guys, the, the people who are not present here, if, if you caught this, but Jenna is, uh, is a lawyer. 
and um, I want to underscore the, this point that in international law, people living under occupation have a right to national liberation and to self-determination. And they have a right to resist occupation. The remarkable thing is that we never hear that anymore about Palestinians. And um, and the, the absurdity of, of some people saying, no, well, you know, nation, right to national liberation was only a right extended to people under colonial rule, but now the colonialism has ended, that right no longer exists. And that that's just a very disingenuous reinventing of international law. But it, it is um, it's just amazing. It's, it's uh, amazing um, that even some people say, well, you hear it in the media all the time, there's a conflict between Hamas and Israel. How is it a conflict between Hamas and Israel? It's not a conflict between Hamas and Israel. Anyway, um, okay, Surah Al Isra. You know, I, I'm going to share this. One of the things that that haunt, haunt, haunted me all night, and it continues to haunt me, and it's it, and it, it's just uh, really difficult to to um, to process. Uh, I saw a video of um, a Palestinian woman from Gaza. Um, she filmed herself and posted this video where she's basically pleading with the world to help and she's talking about, she's saying that every minute 20 missiles fall on us and that, as Jenna was saying, that the, the Gaza is so densely populated there's nowhere to go, there's nowhere to hide. Even if you evacuate a building because you you get a phone call telling you to evacuate a building before it's knocked down a very short while, so you, you have no time to take anything. You just have time to run down. But so even if you evacuate the building, there's nowhere to go. You're still gonna, and so that's why. Right now, such a high percentage of those killed and wounded are children and women because there's literally nowhere to go. So anyway, so this woman w w was panicking and she was pleading with Muslims around the world and she's saying to Muslims, you know, uh, what are you going to say to God in the final day? We, we, we were defending Al-Aqsa, we were doing what you should have been doing. 
um, and she had children in her living room, and it was I. And the children, what caught my attention was not the woman actually, but the children. The children were reading Quran, and it was obvious that every time they hear an explosion, uh, their face looks like it's about to to crack and like they're, that they're, they're they're about to cry. But in order to avoid crying, they would continue reading the Quran, and it's obvious that they they're yelling out the Quran. I couldn't hear them, but I can tell that they're yelling the the verses, not just reading them. And I knew exactly what they were doing. They're they're comforting themselves during the bombardment by she's distracting the children by telling them to read Quran and that if you read Quran, maybe Allah will protect you. And can you imagine, I mean, the, the, can you imagine uh, doing this with your own child? Like, you know, telling your child, here's the Quran and as these bombs are going off and there's nothing you can tell your child, there's, there, there's nothing you can tell them. So you just tell them, read Quran. And she's clearly panicking and the children are clearly terrified. And knowing the number of children that have been killed and wounded in past conflicts and this conflict, so they're sitting ducks for until the time that explosion goes off, and and there are of course the media doesn't cover the 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 families under the rubble because there is a channel called Palestine now. The Israelis have been trying to knock it out, but it continues to broadcast. It, it gets interrupted every once in a while. It's an Arabic channel and it's a live channel, and one of the things that they they is that they there are constantly families buried under the rubble. And then you look at Western media, not a single channel talked about, the, you know, every time there's a building that goes down, uh, um, they talk about the family of such and so, Abu this and Ibn that and Abu this, who's, who are, their entire family is under the rubble, and they're panicking about whether, well, if they dig them out, can they save any of them, or are they already dead? And they can't dig them out while the bombing is going on, but so there's like panicking and freaking out. Do we dig now? Do we wait until the bombing lets up, but the bombing won't let up? I mean... And then in the midst of all of that, you listen to Muslims. Um, American Muslims, he says, we're praying for peace and for all sides to, or, and they're usually Muslims on the Emirati payroll. I mean, b to be very blunt, it, it's, they all have a financial incentive to appease the Emirat and, and Saudis. And the Emirat and Saudis have decided, let the Palestinians die. Um, they're interrupting with our luxuries of life and our ability to procure, procure expensive alcohol and the best prostitutes in the world. 
Because that's what they live for. And Palestinians are, you know, throw a wrench in, in our ability to procure the best prosecutes from the, from the Ukraine. Everyone knows how human trafficking is in Saudi Arabia and in Europe. It's my field, and I know the, the amount of human trafficking that goes on in these countries. And so in the midst of all of this, you get bombarded with all the messages from Emirati and Saudi quarters that say, well, it's the Palestinians' fault. Why did they do, why did they do anything? You know, they should have just shut up and let, And, I, and, you know, if I can, if I can somewhat have a little bit of understanding for cowardly people in Egypt who are scared to say anything because some guy raised the Palestinian flag recently, just all he did was, was take out a Palestinian flag and he was immediately arrested and disappeared. You know, I, I can somewhat understand that that level of fear and cowardliness. But I can't understand that immorality on the part of American Muslims who can watch all of this and if the Quran doesn't teach us ethics, then there is no point. Then there is no point to the Quran. Okay, Surah Al-Isra. I was sort of, uh, there's certain surah that I, I'm, I'm always apprehensive about having when, when it comes time to cover them. And um, Surah Al-Isra is not difficult in its message. But it is it is formidable and necessary that we understand the role of Surah Al-Isra in the Islamic message. And that uh, we, we understand what the Surah was doing and if you imagine the different Surah of the Quran as different components in a coherent building, Surah Al-Isra would have to count as one of the pillars. Uh, one of the main pillars upon which the entire building is constructed. So, it is revealed after Surah Al-Qasas. It's a Meccan Surah, we know that, we know that it was revealed after, as we said before, after the death of the Prophet's uncle and his wife, Khadija. And at, at the height of persecution directed at Muslims. So it is revealed at a time of considerable hardship. We, we had 
سورة مريم طه الدخان الشعراء النمل and القصص all have been revealed and these are all سور that we discussed what will come after سورة الإسراء it's it's not coincidental that what comes right after Surah Al-Isra are stories or Surah focused on particular prophets like uh, Yunus, Hud, Yusuf. Um, but as we saw, Taha al-Dukhan, al-Shu'ara, al-Naml, and Al-Qasas in many ways are leading up to Surah Al-Isra. And that must uh, give us a pause and we might say, well, so what is the message that Surah Al-Isra, what is the message that it's delivering that would require this foundation laying, the, the laying of a foundation, and a laying of foundation that you have over these uh, components of Taha, Dukhan, Shara, and Naml, and Qasas. And From the very beginning, we know that Surah Al-Isra begins, uh, starts out, and it it seems like it's going to be a Surah about an event. It it looks like it's going to be a Surah about the event of Al-Isra wal Maraj. But as we will see, the event is important. And this is, in fact, addressed at the very beginning of the surah. But the surah al-Isra doesn't turn out to be about the Isra and Maraj, but to be about other things, as we will talk about. So stylistically, again, that's very interesting, and that's something that should make us pause and think and reflect upon that very structure. So it starts out from the very beginning, speaking about the central event. Subhanallahi asra bi'abdihi laylan min al-majjid al-harami ila al-majjid al-aqsa al-lazhi barakna hawlahu linuriyahu min ayatina innahu huwa al-sami'u al-alim This is the very first verse of Surah Al-Isra We talked about what tasbih, what subhana is, 
and that this is a form of supplication which underscores a tanzih, that Allah is like no other. Right? And subhanallah, commonly translated glory to God or uh, glory to Allah, but it, it is recognizing that the realm of the maker, the realm of the, the, the divine is unlike any other. It is not like our realm. The laws that apply to divinity are unknown to us. We, as created beings, we live in a world of causation, cause and effect. We are guided by the laws of physics. And the laws of physics were created by the creator. And Again, it is a clear indication of the Creator that the laws of physics apply anywhere in creation. They don't vary. They're the same laws. But what laws apply to the Creator? That is beyond our realm of experience or realization. We just simply do not know. If you are fortunate or blessed, either if you're fortunate or blessed, if you're fortunate, if you have an experience in which Allah allows you to experience something of divinity, not necessarily understand it, but experience it, Be, experience the sense of marvel and transformative power of divinity as as an act of exception as a barakah as a blessing or if you reach the point of artaqa where you elevate yourself where you can in fact experience something of divinity but again you experience it you marvel at it you realize that what you're experiencing has nothing to do with the created laws of you, or that guide the created world has nothing to do the light that you see is not like the light that exists on earth the the things you experience have nothing to do with the laws of causation and whatever you know, blessings you might experience it, it, it the, the thing they confirm and affirm is that the realm of the divine is very different than anything that human beings are um, are familiar with. So the very first ayah in Surah Al-Isra comes and addresses directly that mon monumental event that takes place in the life of the Prophet. Subhanallah, الذي أسرى بعبده ليلا من المسجد الحرام who أسرى, أسرى 
um, uh, it, it, it's it, traveling at night. Uh, you, you can't use Asra if you travel by day. So Asra is a world that connotes traveling by night. Um, now, this raises often an interesting grammatical point because we know that the word Asra means traveling by night. So why does Allah then say, who Asra bi'abdihi laylan? So why mention night? What Asra already means night. And the, the reason for that is it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue of usage. Um, that when you use night at the same time, or you say Layla, night, at the same time that you use the word Asra, um, they call it at tankir al-dal ala al-ba'diyya. Just for at tankir al-dal ala al-ba'diyya, which means that you're saying it's not that they traveled at any time during the night. I they traveled at a specific time during the night, and Allah knows the specific time during the night. Although we're not told what that specific time is. It's just a, you know, um, <clears throat> I mean, again, it, it, it's remarkable how Islamophobes and Orientalists, and they use our ignorance, because I, I've actually encountered an Orientalist, in, a German Orientalist who's saying, well, you know, the, the Quran is not that eloquent, because if it was eloquent, we didn't say Asra and then say Laylan, because that's redundant. No, it's not redundant, idiot. That's a Ba'diyya. But, you know, what do you say? Okay. Um, so, Asra is to, is to travel. And... You, you might call it like horizontally, move from one location to, to another. And what's significant here is that it says carried or caused to travel, and Abdi refers to the Prophet والسلام, and caused to travel from Al Masjid Al Haram, the Masjid in Mecca to the Masjid Al-Aqsa, Masjid in Jerusalem. And we know that this occurred in a specific time in the night. The Mi'raj, instead of a horizontal travel, it's a vertical travel. So when we say Al-Isra' well, Mi'raj means the Isra' part is the part where you go from Mecca to Jerusalem. The Mi'raj part is where you go from Jerusalem upwards to the heavens so carried God's servant from the mosque in Mecca to the mosque in Jerusalem interestingly the Prophet was sleeping most reports say that he was sleeping in the house of Um Hanit at that night and so he's actually carried from the house 
to the mosque in Mecca and then from the mosque in Mecca to the mosque in Jerusalem. And then from the mosque in Jerusalem, we have the Ma'raj part, where then... Now, of course, what is the, the, the big issue here? The big issue is that at a time in which people are suffering a great deal, and when people suffer, they're not in a good mood. When people are going through hardship, not surprisingly, they're not in a good mood. And you come at that time, and yes, they've experienced all these wonderful sore. Yes, they've been educated by all these wonderful sore that we've talked about, the last of which was Surah Al-Qasas. But at the same time that they're being taught these ideals, and these ideals are demanding that they forget about their hunger, they forget about seeing their children suffer, that they forget about the fact that Mecca refuses to buy anything from them or sell anything from to them. They forget about the constant physical threat that Meccans pose to them, and they focus on these ideals that we've talked about in the source that we've covered. I mean, we are enjoying these lessons in relative luxury because none of us are worried about a Meccan abducting us and torturing us to death. Uh, or, you know, we're, we're not starving as we are learning these lessons. But on top of that comes this most remarkable claim that I traveled from Mecca to Jerusalem in a single night, and not only that, but in Jerusalem, I led other prophets in prayer in Masjid al-Aqsa, and at that point, I was elevated to the realm of the Malakut, to the realm of the divine, where there are numerous experiences that many of them reported in hadith. And you always have to be careful about these reports because not because some of them are far more authentic than others, let's put it that way. Not, not everything that you read in the Hadith literature about what the Prophet experiences in Maharaj is equally authentic. And, of course, what the Meccans are going to say is, you know, we've been demanding that he give us a miracle like Moses and Jesus. He's under enormous amount of pressure. Because of the persecution, there's no new converts to Islam. So he came up with some really fantastical claim. When people, a lot of times, leaders, when they're under pressure, they'll you know make some extraordinary claim 
to get people to be committed to them. And so it comes at absolutely the hardest time. It might, it, it definitely brought the Prophet ﷺ an enormous amount of comfort in having that direct experience with divinity. But at the same time that it did that, it also tested the Prophet ﷺ in an unprecedented way and trusted the followers of the Prophet ﷺ because it's either they're going to say, well, our belief in you is so thorough, so absolute, that even if it sounds completely incredulous, we will believe in you. And for instance, when Abu Bakr was told that about the Isra' al-Maraj, and his response was simple, he said, well, if he said it, then it's true. That's Abu Bakr. It was, there was no issue, no crisis of faith. But a lot of Muslims apostated. They, they said, you know, okay, you know, enough is enough. Uh, we've been suffering. We're not in a good mood. You know, when you, we're already in, in a miserable condition and we're not going to believe that he traveled to Jerusalem and then to the heavens in one night. In the tradition, you find this debate that I'm not particularly interested in, but I'll just tell you about, as to whether the Isra and Mi'raj was spiritual or physical. So there are some that say, well, the... The Isra' part was physical and the Mi'raj part was spiritual. So he traveled physically to Jerusalem and back, but he did not travel physically up in the heavens. Some that say all of it was spiritual, that he was lying in, in bed, you would see him laying in bed, but his spirit is the one that went from Mecca to Jerusalem and up to the heavens. And then the third position, obviously, is that it was all physical. That from Mecca to Jerusalem, it was physical, and up to the heavens, it was also physical. I mean, I, I don't find this discussion very interesting because if, if you believe in God and you believe in the Prophet, then it would be a, a, a matter of the simple technical detail that someone would do this journey physically. So what? I mean, does it matter, spiritual or physical? Um, if you believe it is true, physical or spiritual, it's one of these things that it just unimportant and not worth all the discussions that go into it. And most of these discussions are speculative anyway. Just so, because modern Muslims, I've, I've heard modern Muslims say some really bizarre things like, 
you have to believe that it's all physical or you're not a Muslim. Uh, part of the reason that people argued that it was all spiritual or partly spiritual is because, for instance, Aisha, the Prophet's wife, in a very famous hadith, rejected the idea that it was physical and said well, that it's both the Isra and the Maraj were, were spiritual and said that Usra bihi jasad that it would but there are many who've argued that Aisha was talking about an event that took place before she married the Prophet and that that was just her opinion and in fact that she wasn't necessarily right um, which is, I have to admit, it's something I tend to agree with. That, but, but the, I, my point is that to call someone not a Muslim because they side with something that I just—it's ridiculous. That's absurd. Spiritual or physical? Okay. Now. We're not going to talk about all the reports because that would take us hours and hours. All the reports of... But we know that the Isra and Maraj as an event was, and as we'll see, it was a pivotal turning point because so much of what is core to, the, to Islam like the five prayers, are set in stone at the Isra and Maraj. And as we will see, it is not just the five prayers, it is much more than the five prayers. But you might be tempted to say, well, why? I mean, why put Muslims to such a difficult test as to demand that they believe in the Isra and Mi'raj at a time that was already very difficult and very demanding for so many of the followers of the Prophet And what was necessary, why connect Mecca to Jerusalem to the heavens in a single event in this fashion? You know, if it's all just let me dazzle you with a magic trick, like, you know, like the way Moses impressed the people of the Pharaoh with turning a stick into a snake. That's one thing. But this is not the same because this is not witnessed by anyone. So the event has to have a meaning. And if it doesn't have a meaning, then the entire dynamic of Surah Al-Isra is not going to go anywhere. 
So to introduce this, let me just tell you to get at it from an unusual angle. Because contemporary Muslims have been plagued and cursed with the worst type of human beings, in my opinion, that Islam has actually seen in its history. We have now a group of Muslims. There was an Israeli scholar a few years ago who published an article that came up with an argument that when I read, I was a graduate student at Princeton, I, and I read it at the time, and I actually laughed. I actually thought it was so ridiculous that I cracked up. And he basically said that, oh, the Isra was not to the Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. It was to a mosque at basically outside Syria. A little, little unknown mosques that once the Prophet stopped and prayed in, uh, and in one of his uh, um, business trips to Syria. And that Israeli scholar was saying, you know, Jerusalem means nothing to Muslims. It, it, this is the the fact that Muslims think Jerusalem is theirs. That, that this is all. This all happened long after the Prophet died, and even when the Quran talks about the Isra and Miraj, the Quran is talking about this little marginal mosque, or you know, mosque, no mosque is marginal, but that little mosque outside Syria, and, and this is actually what the Qur'an was talking about, and it is, you know, these Muslims, after, long after the death of the Prophet, that then they invented that mythology about the Aqsa Mosque and so on. And of course, it was obvious when you read this article why this Israeli scholar was making the argument he was making. He was making this argument because he had a political motive, right? But the things he was citing to if you just read the sources he was citing to, you could see how he was misreading every single site. So it was actually funny. But lo and behold, the years pass, and I'm no longer a graduate student, and instead of at the beginning of my career, I am at the end of my career. And I find an Egyptian professor called Yusuf Zidane, who's actually quite well known, repeat the exact, precise, same argument. He, he plagiarizes the article by the Israeli scholar and presents it as truth. And it wasn't just Yusuf Zidane. Next thing I see is the same argument is being made by Saudis, the same argument is being made by Emiratis, and the same argument is actually being adopted and pushed on the TV stations owned by the Egyptian government, like DMC and other stations, that, yeah, you know, it's not, that mosque in, in Jerusalem is not the mosque that the Quran is talking about. It's that mosque that actually no longer exists, by the way. 
that is, it's now, it's a part, it, it would fall in, uh, in, in uh, the area of Saudi Arabia that's supposed to be, become part of the Neom project. So it's like, you know, um, and of course, so, and why, why, why did the Saudis and Emiratis and the Egyptian Yusuf Zidane and others do that? Is because they want to let the cowardly Arab leaders off the hook by saying Jerusalem is not important for us. Let the Israelis take it. And in fact, there is a very well-known Saudi who infamously said a mosque, a, a, a literal mosque in the jungles of Kenya, I don't know if Kenya has jungles, but that's what he said, or maybe he said Uganda, is more important than the mosque in Jerusalem. So look at the converse. Look at the people who have dismantled or attempted to dismantle the edifice. What becomes of Islam if you accept their argument? What becomes of Islam, and think about it, it's a thoroughly Arab phenomenon. It is an, a religion that begins and ends in the heart of Arabia. It is solely a Saudi affair. It is not a religion that has any logical con continuations as the truth of the prophecy of Ibrahim or the truth of the prophecy of Musa or the truth of the prophecy of Isa, but it is simply a variant upon the theme. So, Isa is a variant, Musa is a variant, Ibrahim is a variant, and Islam is a variant. So Islam becomes, it's not one truth that Allah sends, and Islam is the most developed articulation of that truth, but rather Islam becomes simply a Arab variant on a truth that has been peddled in the Mediterranean all along. So when the Emirat creates the Bayt al-Ibrahimi, the, the, the new Abrahamic religion that they're propagating, where you can pray in a church, you can pray in a mosque, you can pray in a synagogue, it doesn't matter because all of it is the same. It's a different religion. It's not a religion where Islam is the truth. It is a religion where any of these are equal truths. You follow me so far? Okay. Now, up to this point, and this is a, a very important point that you understand. 
There were Christians in Arabia, but their numbers are limited. And Christians are in Arabia are either they belong to the Abyssinian church or the Coptic church, but the Coptic church is under the hegemony and dominance of the Roman church. The Romans occupied Egypt. They had shut down the, the most of the Coptic churches and were demanding, or they were actually oppressing the Coptic church. They were, they were persecuting the Coptic church. So the Arabs in Arabia, they are it's a, a sort of a, 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 a bit of Abyssinian influences, a bit of Coptic influences, and a few, very few of them in, in, around Mecca were belonged to the Byzantine church. As you get, got closer and closer to Syria, that's where you find the Byzantine Arabs or Christian Byzantine Arabs, the Christian Arabs who followed the Byzantine church. It is fair to say, though, that for the most part, Christianity um, had not attracted a large number of people in the heart of Arabia, and they were not, we don't know of Arab Christian tribes, for instance, in the Yemen area, in the Bahrain area, in the Hejaz area. The, of course, the, the ones closer to Syria are a different deal. The ones who made a consistent claim of being the the legitimate um, representatives of monotheism in Arabia were actually Jewish tribes. But the Jewish tribes were not in Mecca. They were around Yathrib, which later on becomes Medina, or other areas like Khaybar and so on. And one of the transformations that Islam will do is that it will clash with the idea that Jews are God's chosen people forever. And it will clash with the idea that Jews, you are the only legitimate spokespeople for monotheism. But in order to do that, Islam's relationship with the Abrahamic tradition had to be very clear. Because although Abraham clearly was not an Israelite, but the Jews in particular spoke of Abraham as part of their tradition and that they are the legitimate narrative about Abraham and Abraham's descendants. And remember that in these societies, the issue of lineage and descent is very critical.
لإسراء المعراج comes in and as a theological matter makes it very clear long before the 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 direction of prayer was changed to Mecca but it makes it very clear the relationship between Islam and as we will see between Islam and the revelations, the monotheistic revelations before Islam. And it is the Isra and Mi'raj where the idea that the Kaaba is a, an Abrahamic product, obviously by Ibrahim and Ismail, as we know, but the, the idea that it, this is not about tribes, this is not about race, this is not about ethnicity, this is about the idea of monotheism, the concept of monotheism, and that what the Kaaba is anchored around is monotheism, and that the Kaaba is intertwined with al-Masjid al-Aqsa in Jerusalem, the symbol, these two are the symbol of monotheism. So when Muslims say Jerusalem is the third holy site, I actually don't like that. Jerusalem is not the third holy site. Jerusalem is an equal holy site because it is it is the other half for what represents the conviction of the monotheistic narrative according to Islam. That Ibrahim was a monotheist, Moses was a monotheist, and that Moses was not about a race. That Moses was about a religion. That Jesus was a monotheist. And that Jesus was not about suffering for people's sins. People of Jesus was about a religion, Islam. It's the same religion, time and time and time again. And that construct could only be so firmly established in the Isra and Maraj. Now, add to this once this became very clear, Muslims were on a clash, clashing course with the Israelites, with Jews, because the, the message of the Prophet, and as we will see as we study Surah Al-Baqarah, for instance, was that, you know, it, the, the idea of God, you're God's chosen people, and you continue to be God's chosen people is not consistent with the monotheistic theology. This is not how it works anymore. God chose you for a purpose under certain circumstance and for a specific, because you were playing a specific historical role. But God's 
justice is the same. And God's justice with you Israelites is the same with us Muslims. We either perform our role as God's people or God will replace us. Now, we say this today, but for them, this was all radical. These were people who affiliation and tribes and lineage and status and class was everything. And you're coming in and saying, no, no, it's not about that. It is about these principles and you either live up to them or God changes you. This was quite radical and that's why, in fact, the, the Prophet's message, the Prophet's role, has become so much harder because now he realized he can't even count on the support of Christians and Jews against the infidel Meccans. They're not going to be sympathetic to him. And he knew that, okay, now it's, it's I'm taking on the world. Basically, and this, in my view, is why the Prophet ﷺ needed the Mi'raj. It's exactly like when Moses asked to see Allah, and Allah says, "Why haven't you believed?" And He says, "So my heart would." When these people who are going up against the world, literally needed a resolve and a faith that is unwavering because the, the challenges they're going to take on are unbelievable. But at the same time, subhanAllah, it is as if Allah was saying the next stage where you are now going to be laying the seed for an entire civilization requires Muslims who can be transformed through the lessons they learned through the surah that was revealed Through the sword like Taha and the Shara and all the sword we talked about, and that they are committed to the cause because of the lessons they learned from the sword. Those Muslims who claim to understand the lesson, but who will turn on you because of their doubts, because they can't, their, their trust in you is not, is not absolute, because they have, they basically say, well, we, we believe, but you have to, you know, not test us too hard. You don't need them. And yes, it was very hard on the Prophet ﷺ because we, we have so many reports about how hard it was for him to see some of the people that had believed in him say, no, we're no longer Muslim. But 
Allah knew that this is absolutely necessary. The, the next stage of Hijrah and the challenges of Medina um, required people who understood the ethical message, as we will see. And this is why, precisely why, right after the first verse, what does Surah Al-Isra tell us about? It goes on to talk about the Israelites. And immediately, right away, it says, we brought Musa the book, and, and it, it identifies what the message is for the Israelites. Made it a guidance that do not take a protector, a guardian, apart from me. It's about Allah, not about anything else. And then it right away sets that principle. The people, uh, the Israelites, will ascend twice. Cause corruption on earth means that they will ascend and they will forget. They will forget, in my view, forget precisely monotheism. Monotheism in particular. And they will turn it into some a message about tribalism. We the Israelites and about a race and an ethnicity. And that they will be defeated twice. And the Islamic sources cannot agree on what the the twice ascendant, twice destroyed are. So, you know, some said that the first time was when the Assyrians um, overran Palestine in the 8th century BC before Christ in 722 I believe and the second time was when the Babylonians um, overrun the uh, um, overrun Israel and destroy the, the, the second temp, the temple in the 6th century BC I think it was 586 when, when, and, they, and, they're, and they're taken into captivity some said no the first time was the Babylonian in the 6th century BC and the second time is a Roman invasion and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD you get, oh, and some said no, the, the first time was Goliath, and specifically the story of Goliath. And then, interestingly, pre-modern commentators didn't imagine that the Israelites will ever have another state after Islam uh, 
after Palestine became Muslim. I mean, the idea that the Israelites, after all these centuries, are going to create another state was unthinkable. So none of them thought of the two times as, um, as addressing anything other than past history. But of course, after 1948, then we started seeing a lot of Muslim commentators say, well, maybe one of those times is modern Israel. And maybe one of the times that of the destruction of, this, of the Israeli states is going to be in the modern age. So they started, and especially if you notice, the Quran says, وَإِنْ عُدْتُمْ عُدْنَا Yeah, this is verse 8. Meaning that every time, every time you are going to go and, and well, that this is an ongoing process. And so a lot of modern commentators said, well, you know, this would seem to apply to the modern state of Israel that's causing a lot of corruption and causing a lot of injustice and the same logic would apply. I'm not so... I mean, I'm not so keen on reading the, 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 the Quran as a historical predictor. I don't think that that's um, a fair way of dealing with the text of the Quran. What was the point of what the Quran was saying? That That's the real issue. And the point is that the Quran is saying, وَإِنْ أَحْسَنْتُمْ فَأَحْسَنْتُمْ لِأَنفُسِكُمْ If you do good, it's for your own good. And if you deviate, there is a logic. Deviating from the straight path leads to destruction. The point was not to send a message to the Israelites. It was to educate Muslims. The point was to tell Muslims, listen, the Christians are all about Jesus suffered for us. Okay, they're, they're you know, often la-la land, so to speak. The Jews are all about, we are the chosen people, we have special relationship, we have special access, we have special this, special that, and the logic of the Isra and Mi'raj and the logic of the revelation itself is saying, no, 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 that's not the way it works. God doesn't play these types of favorites. The Surah Al-Isra is going to tell you what the, the, the Constitution is that God wants you to abide by. 
But if you abide by the constitution that Surah Al-Isra is setting out, then God is with you. If you don't abide by the constitution that Surah Al-Isra is setting out, then God turns against you and does not support you and does not aid you. And Allah knows that Muslims, Muslims don't know this, but Allah knows this, that they're going to migrate to Medina and they're going to come, come in contact with the Jewish tribes and there are going to be very intense debates between the Jewish tribes and Muslims. And the Jewish tribes are going to be constantly trying to challenge the theology of Islam. But, and the temptation for Muslims, because again, it's a tribal society, the temptations when Muslims go to Medina and they see Jews talking about a privileged relationship with Allah is for Muslims to say, no, it's we who have a privileged relationship with Allah. It is an issue of Jew versus Arab. But the Quran is teaching them it's not an issue about Jew versus Arab. At all. It's about principles and ethics, as we will see. Who follows the right ethics? Not chosen people, not ethnicity, not race, no promised lands. No promised lands. That's part of the entire inequity of things. Okay, God said, for now, go live in this land. The Bible says that God said, go murder the people in this land, slaughter them, kick them out, and take their homes. That's what the Bible says. The Quran doesn't say that. The Quran said, escape, take refuge in that land. It didn't say obliterate the people of the land and take it over. And that is the ifsatful art that the Israelites commit is that instead of taking refuge in the land and respecting the rights of others, they destroy them. Those who say the, the idiocy, when you, I find Muslims that say, uh, they say that the Prophet copied the Bible and that's how he wrote the Quran. It's like, I, I, you know, I'm not a violent man. <laughs> yeah, I, I just like, I get the urge to slap them because, because stupidity annoys me. Ignorance annoys me to, to, to the core. It, it, anyone, if someone was copying from the Bible, there is no way they would have come up with the Quran the way it is. If you're under the influence of the Bible and biblical narrative, because the Bible is very different. The narrative of the Bible is you're entitled slaughter these people. The narrative of the Quran is take refuge in this land. It's not promised. It's not yours. You can't kick people out of their homes. And it calls what the Bible celebrates as the rights of the Israelites. It calls it ifsatful ard, causing corruption on earth. Wow. It's a complete different morality. 
So this is very, it starts out this way, Isra, Israelites. So you get the point, okay? The Isra is 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 about understanding the relationship between the Prophet Muhammad and all the other prophets and the essential core message. And then as we will see, and here is the the what I my journey with the Quran and especially my journey with Surah Al-Isra have persuaded me of and I will discuss it with you. The Isra sets out, you know, in, 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 the, in the biblical tradition, there are the Ten Commandments, right? The Mosaic Law. The Isra is like the Muslim Ten Commandments. The Isra sets the the divine basic core commandments, the, the backbone of morality. If you have that morality, there is potential. You don't have that morality, it's a no-go. So right after we are told about the Israelites and the point of the Israelites, verse 9 tells you what I, what I was just telling you. إِنَّ هَذَا الْقُرْآنَ يَهْدِي لِلَّتِي هِيَ أَقْوَمُ وَيُبَشِّرُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ الَّذِينَ يَعْمَلُونَ الصَّالِحَاتِ أَنَّ لَهُمْ أَجْرًا كَبِيرًا This Quran guides you towards the most upright path. Verses from 9 to, uh, to 12, Allah reminds us of the heart and soul of monotheism the belief in the hereafter, and the miracle of creation. But note, um, in verse 12, This is 12. Um, we made the night and day two signs, then we effaced the sign of the night and made the sign of the day, giving sight that you may seek bounty of your Lord. The the interesting thing about this is, again, in the traditional tafsir, they 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 pause and they think, okay, so what does mahauna ayat al-layl that we efface the sign of the night and remarkably quite a few of them said well some of them thought that it's referring to how the moon looks but but they, some of them said well 
the sign the the sun is an actual source of light and what we call energy but the moon it doesn't produce its own light i mean it's a, it's a remarkably beautiful expression and a remarkably amazing way of pointing to the fact that the night is simply the absence of sunlight and that the moon doesn't generate and of course you know considering the time it was it was saying that it's scientifically amazing okay and then 11 Twice in Surah Al-Isra, Allah is going to point our attention to the fact that human beings are hasty and impatient, restless, anxious. So, man prays Humans pray for evil. Uh, pray. Uh, uh, humans pray for evil as they pray for good, and humans are ever hasty. This is um. وَيَدْعُونَ الْإِنْسَانَ بِالشَّرَّ دُعَاهُ بِالْخَيْرِ وَكَانَ الْإِنْسَانُ عَجُولًا وَكَانَ الْإِنْسَانُ عَجُولًا. Why? This is the first time that we're told this, and then later on is going to say it again. But why? Because the type of morality that Surah Al-Isra is going to... It's a morality that requires hikmah, it requires wisdom. And so much immorality is not actually the product of an evil heart but it is the product of impatience and restlessness. It is, it is the, when you tire of waiting, often what you tire of is that you're tired of doing things the right way. And when you tire of doing things the right way, then you're doing them the wrong way. And it is, I've always thought it is remarkable that before Surah Al-Isra delivers to us the core constitution, ethical constitution, it underscores that, and in fact there is another thing that I'll, I'll tell you, is that a lot of the people that apostated um, were also, you know, the people that had a problem with patience. And they just, okay, you know, we're, we're, we're done. No, this is too much. Okay, you know, we, we've been patient long enough. Um, Uh, this is um, good 
akhlaq, having akhlaq, often requires that you train yourself to be patient. Okay. And right after that, we start getting what I call the ethical constitution and the Islamic version of the Ten Commandments. And because it's heavy, can we take a two-minute break? So I can take a breather before taking it on. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Okay. So, look at the... Now, starting with verse 13, وَكُلُّ وَكُلَّ إِنْسَانٍ أَلْزَمْنَاهُ طَائِرَهُ فِي عُنْقِهِ فِي عُنْقِهِ وَنُخْرِجُ لَهُ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ كِتَابًا يَلْقَاهُ مَنْشُورًا So, first, وَأَلْزَمْنَاهُ طَائِرَهُ فِي عُنْقِهِ This is an idiomatic expression. I mean, uh, the, the origin of it... Um, um, The origin of it doesn't really matter. It, 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 it's the, the Arabs um, in old, when they would, often when they would, try, uh, embark, upon embarking up, uh, on a journey, they would release a, a, um, a bird. And depending on the direction the bird would go, they would decide it's either a good omen or a bad omen. And either then embark upon the trip or not embark upon the trip. And from that developed the expression that which would, well, let's see how they translate it in study Quran. Uh, we have fastened his omen upon his neck which basically means that your account, your responsibility is individual. It, it, it's an idiomatic expression. So first is that responsibility and accountability is personal and individual. اقرأ كتابك كفى بنفسك اليوم عليك حسيبا You... In fact, you yourself can look at your own record. And many ihtada fa'innama yahtadi linafsihi wa man dalla fa'innama yadillu alayha. Whoever is guided, is guided for herself or, her, or himself, which invalidates the logic of coercion. It's either you, you, you guide yourself for your own self, you're only responsible for you. And which becomes a um, uh, um, 
what is the word I'm looking for? The, it becomes a, a maxim of law, um, but also an ethical principle. No one can be held accountable for the sin of another. No one should be held responsible for the sin of another. The idea of collective punishment is out, and it's against justice. Um, and punishment, there is no punishment without notice, which again becomes a principle of law, that in order for law to apply, there has to be sufficient opportunity to learn the law. So you can't punish people ex post facto. You can't make the law after the fact and then punish people. These principles were were at the time where a lot of legal pun a lot of legal systems did apply collective punishments, and a lot of legal systems did apply ex post facto laws. So when when in Surah Al Isra this is being set as basic principles of justice. Now the irony is like centuries later. We see the Israelis, although it's against the Geneva Conventions, the Israelis apply collective punishments in Palestine. You know, when, when there used to be a terrorist attack and they would go blow up the home of um, the family, uh, the family home of whoever the, the, um, committed the, the attack. Um, Ex post facto laws, although universally recognized as against the principles of justice, unfortunately, a lot of legal systems still do implement ex post facto laws. Okay. And then this remarkable verse 16 وَإِذَا أَرَدْنَا أَن نُهْلِكَ قَرْيَةً أَمَرْنَا مُتْرَفِيهَا فَفَسَقُوا فِيهَا فَحَقَّ عَلَيْهَا الْقَوْلِ فَدَمَّرْنَاهَا تَدْمِيرًا There is a debate about this verse that centers around the word أَمَرْنَا um, Let's see how they translated it here and when we desire to destroy a town, we command those who live a life of luxury within it, yet they commit inequity therein, thus the word comes due against it, and we annihilate it completely. Um, okay, so 16, the issue is, Amarna Mutrafiha, what does that mean? Is it saying that that when when God's wrath or God's punishment is due upon a people, does God command? Does God cause the the upper class to become inequitous, and then because of their inequity? 
the 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 town is destroyed. That actually is not the meaning. Although I've seen again some Muslims in the in um, in, in Sunday classes and and I've seen some, also Islamophobes say, especially evangelical Christians. Say, look, you know, the, the Quran it's isn't unfair for God to cause rich people to be corrupt and then punish them for being corrupt, but that's actually not what it's saying. Um Amarna Mutrafiha linguistically, it's like saying to someone, Amart Fa'asa that I've I when you say amartu fasa, doesn't mean I commanded the person to be inequitous. It says I commanded the person to be good, but fasa means and and this person disobeyed. So when you say amarna mutrafiha, means God commanded the, or to put it differently, the the those who are well off contravened God's command and as a result it was destroyed. That's one. Another said, no, it shouldn't be read as Amarna, but it should be read as Amarna, Amarna, Mutrafiha. And Amarna Mutrafiha means that Ammarna is that those who are the elite, the high class, the people of luxury, rise to the position of leadership. And when they do, the town is destroyed. The third possible meaning is Akhtarna Mutrafiha. If you say some amarna mutrafiha, it could also amar shayt could mean in, in, in linguistically you increase the number of something. So it could mean also amarna mutrafiha means we've increased the number of people who are well off, who are living in luxury. And when that, when we did that, corruption spread and and when corruption spread we've destroyed now what is what is um, common to all the different possible uh, interpretations is that again remember constitutional principles ethical principles is that corruption normally begins when you have a class that lives in luxury. And that class that lives in luxury will believe it is entitled. And when they believe they're entitled, they also will have no patience for principles. They will have no perseverance. And when they have no patience and perseverance, they, 
they will forget the path of God and they forget the ethics that God teaches. And then destruction becomes due. Interestingly, among the, in the in Quranic commentaries, the, the most frequent comment about this verse is that whenever a town, that whenever a, a luxury spreads in a town, what sp- also spreads in that same town is adultery and fornication and drinking. The richer people are, the more they indulge in sex and they indulge in drink. And... And I always thought to myself, you know, if if uh, if that's a herald of destruction to come, then I can think of several Muslim places that um, are very high candidates. Now, uh, you know, of course, it doesn't necessarily mean it will happen in my lifetime, uh, but. My my brother yesterday was saying that when he went to Dubai, um, in Dubai there were, the, all everywhere he went there would be these like really nice cards, uh, out in the street everywhere. That Dubai is very very clean, spotless, but he says the thing that you notice is that in many places there are like these cards that are out, and he said when you pick up the card there is a woman in a bikini, and a list of all the nationalities available and an advertisement for a massage. So you can get a massage from an Egyptian woman, Ukrainian woman, a Russian woman, you know, Ethiopian woman, Indian woman. And he says everyone knows that this is not a massage, this is prostitution. And, but, uh, and I, and I know that this is, I mean, what my brother was telling me is consistent with what I know from the human trafficking field because um, the Gulf countries, especially the Emirat and Saudi Arabia, are among the worst human trafficking violators in, in the world. Okay. وَكَمْ أَهْلَكْنَا مِنَ الْقُرُونِ مِنْ بَعْدِ نُوحٍ وَكَفَى بِرَبِّكَ بِذُنُوبِ عِبَادِهِ خَبِيرًا بَصِيرًا How many nations after Nuh have we destroyed? And Allah knows what the sins of people are and what the sins of nations are. مَنْ كَانَ يُرِيدُ الْعَاجِلَةَ عَجَّنَّا لَهُ فِيهَا مَا نَشَاءَ عجلنا له فيها ما نشاء لمن نريد ثم عجلنا له جهنم يصلاها مزموما مدحورا This is 18 uh, Whoever desires the ephemeral We hasten for him therein whatsoever we will for whomever so we desire Then we appoint hell for them so you you get the point um, that whoever wants the immediate life, Allah gives them the immediate life, but then they have no no share in the hereafter. And whoever seeks the hereafter and does what is necessary for the hereafter, 
that's what Allah facilitates. كُلَّنَّ نُمِدُّ هَؤُلَاءَ كُلَّنَّ نُمِدُّ هَؤُلَاءَ وَهَؤُلَاءَ مِنْ عَطَاءِ رَبِّكَ وَمَا كَانَ عَطَاءُ رَبِّكَ مَحْظُورًا For both those that want the hereafter or those who work for the hereafter and those who want immediate life and don't care about the hereafter Allah is telling you for both of them it is Allah that gives them and there's no restraint there's nothing that prevents so don't think that either of them um, that what whatever blessings they're enjoying that it is something outside God's province or something outside God's responsibility this is the sense for the sense of people who say well you know the rich they're enti not entitled to what we have the right to steal from the rich no you don't because older they're rich and older they might be corrupt but what they were given, they were given by God. Okay. Then we go to 22. Don't worship another God with God. Your fate is not good. Now, this is not just فَتَقْعُدْ مَزْمُومًا مَخْزُولًا The expression is remarkable because the study Quran is translated as lest you sit blameworthy forsaken. It is not just the hereafter, but every time you associate you you drift away from the paradigm of monotheism and you worship another god like your own ego like a tradition like mythology or superstition like any of the things that human beings often submit to and make dominant in their life فَتَقْعُدْ مَزْمُومًا مَخْزُولًا it's a, it's, a, it's a remarkable expression because it's like saying you ultimately the place where you are where you will go is a very lonely place and a very restless place it's not a happy place whether it's hellfire or before hellfire وَقَدَ رَبُّكَ أَلَّا تَعْبُدُوا إِلَّا إِيَّاهُ وَبِالْوَالِدَيْنِ إِحْسَانًا So, now we, we, we've established some basic moral foundation, monotheism, and resist the temptation to worship other gods. 
individual accountability as a principle of justice. You can't hold someone accountable for the sins of another as a principle of justice. There is no punishment without notice, meaning you can't hold people responsible for a law that they didn't have an opportunity to follow in the first place as a principle of justice. And understand that it is luxury and entitlement that will often cause people to drift away and to deteriorate into corruption as an ethical social principle. Then we start getting the commandments. The first commandment, your parents. God ordered that you worship God. وَبِالْوَالِدَيْنِ إِحْسَانًا Kindness to your parents. So that if they reach old age, and notice it, إِمَّا يَبْلُغَنَّ عِنْدَكَ الْكِبَرَ عِنْدَكَ With you, meaning you are taking care of them, not putting them somewhere. Because عِنْدَكَ means in your abode. Is it haram to put your parents in a senior citizen's place or whatever? Yes, it is if they don't want to go. You can't, you can't force them. It is haram. You, Islamically, you have an obligation to take care of them. As they get old. فَلَا تَقُلْ لَهُمَا أُفٍ وَلَا تَنْهَرْهُمَا You can't even speak harshly to them. وَاخْفِضْ لَهُمَا جَنَاحَ الذُّلِّ مِنَ الرَّحْمَةِ وَقُلْ رَبِّ الْحَمْهُمَا كَمَ رَبَّيَانِ صَغِيرًا And not only, so you can't say uff, meaning you can't raise your voice to them, you can't snap at them, uff is snapping. No, you can't snap at your parents. It's not allowed. وَلَا تَنْهَرْهُمَا تَنْهَرْهُمَا means you don't speak harshly to them. Don't tell them off. Don't, you know, discipline them. وَخْفِدْ لَهُمَا جَنَاحَ الذُّلِّ مِنَ الرَّحْمَةِ That's a remarkable expression. The way you treat them is as if you have a wing. And that wing is a wing of mercy. And you lower the wing of mercy before their feet. So can you imagine the image? You, you, you are ordered not just to treat them with respect, but with mercy. You extend compassion to them. And then after all of that, then your dua for them is Allah treat them with mercy like they've raised me as a child. Now, a lot of people, of course, young people, often ask me, why? Why, why 
like with respecting your parents and treating your parents with this level of compassion and mercy be important so important that it's mentioned right after worship Allah and why would it be so important before these people are going to migrate to Medina and some of them are going to have to go to battle against their their father or their mother but that's precisely the point I could go to battle because you as my father you want to kill the prophet you want to kill me but no battle will change the ethical relationship that if you give me the chance as a Muslim I will treat you with compassion and mercy because it is necessary for the moral structure of society itself if parents can no longer count on their children and if parents are threatened by their children the entire social fabric of society falls apart and this is where you get the the mutrafiha fafasakufiha the the those who are spoiled uh we we don't want the inconvenience of taking our parents we're entitled to have fun we're entitled to look out for number one they cramp our style they make us you know they take up our time that's precisely why Allah warns you about the attitude of luxury the attitude of luxury makes you ignore your children because you think you're entitled how many people in you know in society they go out to bars drinking and they leave their children Oh, because we, we have a right to have fun. But the other way also, now as an adult, it's not that you put up with your parents. You have to lower the wing of mercy. Allah will not bless you. Allah will not bless you unless you treat your parents with that level of compassion okay so no notice then rabbukum a'lamu bima fi nufusikum in takunu salihina fa innahu kana lil awabina ghafura okay Another principle, repentance and forgiveness. Allah knows your intentions. Awabin, an awab is a person who sins. If they sin, they repent. So that will also become important so that you don't become discombobulated if you commit an error you don't you don't become one of those people if you do something wrong oh i'm a horrible person i'm disgusting i'm unworthy i'm what's the point i 
that that's not how this works. Okay. وَآتِ ذِي الْقُرْبَ حَقَّهُ وَالْمِسْكِينَ وَابْنَ السَّبِيلِ وَلَا تُبَذِّرْ تَبْذِيرًا So then another commandment. You have obligations and duties towards the Qurba, those who are relatives, blood relatives. Well miskin, the poor, Wabna Sabil basically are refugees or wayfarers, people who don't have a home. Ibn Sabil is our modern refugee. they have rights that you must fulfill. But don't be, um, what is the, the word? Um, 26. Yeah, don't don't be don't be don't squander wastefully is what the study Quran. In the Mubazirin, كانوا إخوان الشياطين وكان الشيطان لربه كفورا. There was a hadith about about this, but I didn't. I don't think I wrote it down. I don't remember. But anyway, um, squanderers are described as the Juan Shatin demonic. This. So many theologians point out that this must be read in the same context with the Mutrafiha. It is not, it is not, it's not talking about someone who is generous. It is talking about people who spend in taraf, people who spend to indulge in luxury and enjoy luxury and boast with luxury. Because among the, the function of money for the rich, it is not just those who spend to brag about their wealth, but those who spend and don't care about how their spending impacts those who are less fortunate. So they, they'll enjoy whatever luxury they want, enjoy, want to enjoy, and they don't care if people are in need, people are starving, people are hungry, people are... If the world is full of refugees, it's not something that they concern themselves with. And these are described as literally demonic beings, Ikhwan al-Shayateen. Because shaitan 
is a racist, but also shaitan lacks empathy. Shaitan has no empathy for anyone. Shaitan is the quintessential narcissist. Anyone who has no empathy and it, it glorifies narcissistic tendencies is a demon in, 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 in all the meaningful ways. Okay. وَإِن تُعْرِضَنَّ عَنْهُمْ إِبْتِغَاءَ رَحْمَةٍ مِنْ رَبِّكْ تَرْجُوهَا فَقُلْ لَهُمْ قَوْلًا مَيْسُورًا Let's see what they translate this one too. Yeah. So if for whatever reason you cannot give to relatives, to the poor, and to the wayfarer or to refugees, but notice here, let's say, So that the reason you can't help them is not because you're greedy or you're stingy, but because you, ha you're, you need to spend your money elsewhere in, in something that is good. means that in, 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 in something that's needed like taking care of your children, for instance. Don't turn them away harshly. You, you, you have to, when you turn away people, you must do it kindly and not arrogantly. The balance, you are, don't, be stingy. That's what means. And don't spend everything that you have. Both the, the, the rule of moderation. Okay. And 30, that Allah is the provider. It's not that you provide. Okay. Then it continues on with the commandments. وَلَا تَقْتُلُوا أَوْلَادَكُمْ خَشْيَةَ إِمْلَاقٍ نَحْنُ نَرْزُقُهُمْ وَإِيَّاكُمْ إِنَّ قَتْلَهُمْ كَانَ خِطَأً كَبِيرًا Don't kill your children, don't abort children, don't murder children because you fear poverty. Because that's a great sin. وَلَا تَقْرَبُوا الزِّنَا إِنَّهُ كَانَ فَاحِشَةً وَسَاءَ سَبِيلًا and this is 32. Do not approach adultery. It's, it doesn't say do not commit adultery, but do not approach adultery. Meaning that don't get even close to the steps that would lead to adultery. People know what things would lead to adultery. You know, adultery is not just something that happens as you're walking somewhere and you just slip and fall. Um, so, you know, don't kid yourself and don't kid God. 
stay away from it. If you know that it's going to go there, then the haram has began. It's not just the adultery, but the haram begins with every step that you take towards it. ولا تقتلوا ولا تقتلوا النفس التي حرم الله إلا بالحق ومن قتل مظلوما فقد جعلنا لوليه سلطانا فلا يسرف في القتل إنه كان منصورا don't kill and if someone has a right so if Someone has the, the, the holder of right because of the law of Talion. It's, it's the most typical one. So, if someone is killed unjustly and the family then has the right to either forgive or accept compensation, of course, this is not in the case of intentional murder, but it's in the case of wrongful, uh, um, like reckless killing or it, compensation or retaliation. Well, actually, it is in case of intentional murder. I'm, I'm sorry, I misspoke. La yusruf al means that even if you have the right to, to demand the exaction of punishment, we know that, I mean, the Quran says that forgiveness is better. But if you're not going to forgive, then the idea that because you suffered an injustice, you have a right to exact punishment beyond the limited narrow that is required by justice, is unjustified. Of course, what it's, what it's specifically talking about is the tend tendency for vengeance to be, well, you know, they killed my son, I'm gonna kill 10 of them because of my son. In, in a word, in international law and the law were the law of proportionality, you know, it's like the Israelis, you know, you, you've killed one of my citizens, well, I'm gonna kill a hundred of you. Um, that's exactly the, the type of that even if you have a right to punish the offender, you don't have a right to go beyond that. This becomes a principle in, in not just in criminal law, it becomes a principle in, in ethics, in criminal law, in international law, in law of war. It, be, it becomes a... Um, okay. Um, And of course, uh, I needless to say that for Arabs who lived these, you know, long tribal wars of vengeance, um, that was a very difficult principle to to accept because that that meant all people are equal. You know, there there's no such thing as well. You you killed a noble noblemen in my in my tribe so that's worth 20 of you and, and all of them okay 
ولا تقربوا مال اليتيم إلا بالتي هي أحسن حتى يبلغ أشدة the property of orphans which is heavily emphasized again and we've already encountered this um, in um, Surah Al-Rab you have to absolutely honor your covenants your commitments your promises the, again as a moral ethical principle and do not cheat in measures and trade. The kustas, the scale, as a symbol of justice. وَلَا تَقْفُ مَا لَيْسَ لَكَ بِهِ عِلْمٌ إِنَّ السَّمْعَ وَالْبَصَرَ وَالْفُؤَادَ كُلُّ ذَلِكَ كُلُّ أُولَئِكَ كَانَ عَنْهُ مَسْؤُولًا means don't talk about what you don't know وَلَا تَقْفُ مَا لَيْسَ لَكَ بِهِ عِلْمٌ don't blabber about what you don't know and don't repeat rumors and don't deal in hearsay so don't sit there and ch chitter chatter about people dealing in rumors or speaking about things that you actually don't have knowledge of and the reminder that remember that you will be held responsible for what you've heard and what you've seen and what you felt. You are accountable for what you've chose to look at and what you chose to listen to and obviously what you've chose to speak about. وَلَا تَمْشِ فِي الْأَرْضِ مَرَحَا إِنَّكَ لَنْ تَخْرِقَ الْأَرْضَ وَلَنْ تَبْلِغَ الْجُبَالَ طُولَةً And don't prance around on the land as if you're all that. Literally, don't walk so pompously. Don't walk pompously on this land. It's a remarkable. You will never be as tall as the mountains, and you're never gonna. You know, you're not so important that you're gonna be hammering holes on Earth as you walk. Your humility and modesty, even in the way you conduct yourself, just so. Is it un-Islamic to walk around arrogantly? Yes, un-Islamic. So all of this 
is sin. And all of this is the things that Allah does not like. ذلك مما أوحى إليك ربك من الحكمة ولا تجعل مع الله إلها آخر فتلقى في جهنم ملوما مدحورا This is 29 39 sir Okay, so in these commandments so we started out with the Isra. Then we were told that people of Israel went the wrong path and because of that, there were consequences. Then we got a manifesto of ethical principles. One of the interesting narratives about Surah Al-Isra I mean, it's 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 often cited. Um, this hadith is often cited in, in as commentators discuss Surah Al Isra. Is uh, as the narrative goes that after the Hijra. Jews hear that there is an ethical manifesto, or it's what what I mean what I describe as an ethical manifesto. But they they hear that the the uh, the prophet has laws equal to. Um, the Ten Commandments. So they they go to him and they say, "What are your commandments?" And in the Hadith, the the Prophet ﷺ answers, "لا تشركوا بالله شيئا do not associate partners with God. ولا تزنو don't fornicate or commit adultery. ولا تسرقوا and don't steal. ولا تقتلوا النفس التي حرم الله إلا بالحق don't kill." ولا تسرقوا oh, I said already ولا تسرقوا sorry uh, don't ولا تسحروا means don't practice witchcraft and interestingly in this hadith it says ولا تمشوا ببريئ إلى السلطان فيقتله don't help people in power kill innocent or oppress innocent people don't you don't practice usury and don't slander um, the honor of a woman and the interesting thing is that in in these reports, Some of these supports had the the additional proviso. But as for in the case of Jews, don't transgress in the Sabbath. 
Now, of course, the list in, in this hadith is not identical to the list that we see so far in Surah Al-Isra. There's a little bit of difference. For instance, we don't have something like don't help an, a, a ruler kill an innocent person. But in both, it is an ethical manifesto. And especially in Surah Al-Isra, if you take the, 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 the rule of the Sabbath out, which was um, not applicable for Muslims, um, they are moral commandments at a critical point right before the Hijrah is going to come. Then from 39 to 43, Surah Al-Isra segues into the principle of monotheism itself, that it is illogical to accept anything other than simple monotheism because if there were more than one God, the world wouldn't work. Gods would would have conflicts and etc. etc. Even Sabila means that there would be conflicts between these gods, and you wouldn't find unity and coherence in creation. But then. A lot of people come to 44 and 45 and think that what the Quran is saying is sort of in the realm of, of the interesting but not as ethically critical as the rest. So in 44, where Allah told us that everything in the Samawat Sab will ard, everything in the heavens and earth. And we said Tasbih is to Tanzih to to testify to God's singularity and uniqueness. However, here there is an additional element in 44 when it says وَلَكِنْ لَا تَفْقَهُونَ تَسْبِيحَهُمْ So they do tasbih but you don't understand that tasbih which would seem to indicate that we're not just talking about the fact that their mere existence or that the simple existence attests God's oneness but that in fact what Allah is saying is that everything in the earth and in the heavens is alive in a way that you don't understand and that is connected to the Lord in a way that you don't understand But this
this is not a curiosity or just something interesting that the Quran is pointing out. This is critical to the virtuous outlook or to the system of virtue that the Quran demands in an ethical manifesto. Because if everything in the heavens and the earth is supplicating in the name of the Lord, everything is connected to the divine, then you are not at liberty to deal with anything except through a license from the divine. So the way that we see that we exploit earth and pollute earth would not be acceptable. And we do have a lot of narratives that support us. So for instance, one of the less no, not very well-known hadiths is one where a, a, someone is bitten by an ant. So when he's bitten by an ant, he ended up destroying the entire um, ant nest. And then the prophet said, because you were bitten by a single ant, you destroyed all these ants who supplicate the Lord. There are many others like that. The um, hadiths that talk about that the, I mean, they're not of the highest authenticity, but anyway, that the Prophet would hear um, the supplication of chairs and supplication of trees and he would comfort trees and that uh, he would say this tree is anxious and so he would come bring you know touch the tree and read Quran to comfort the tree there, there are a lot of traditions like that but if you take all of them and maybe someone should write a, a book about the, these traditions in which, because they're, they've been forgotten in the modern age, where you have the, the Prophet telling the companions about the life of inanimate objects like chairs, tables, trees. Um, these are the things I can remember, but I know I'm forgetting a whole bunch of them because there were a lot you know, a, a lot of things that, that, then you ask yourself, what, what is the point in Surah Al-Isra? Here, here's the Surah that's telling us an ethical code about what would keep us on the right side of God so we don't be among those that God is going to forget and allow to be destroyed. And the answer is obvious. It's a, an attitude of reverence and non-entitlement towards all living things. Now, if you're really good, and this is where the Sufi-esque tafsir come in, the Sufi-esque tafsir tell you that if you elevate enough that you reach a stage where you actually hear the supplication of things. So it is not at all uncommon to read in the writings of Ijilani, for instance, where he talks about 
hearing the tasbih of trees and hearing the tasbih of plants on the ground and hearing that and in fact one of the passages say that he stopped eating uh, fruit because he would hear the anxiety of fruit before being eaten. I mean, that, that's sort of difficult to live with. Can you imagine every time you eat, a, before you eat a fruit, like, yeah, that, that's hard. But anyway, I mean, it, it's a point of virtue is what I'm underscoring. Okay. Okay, Maharib, how much time you have? I have a lot of time. But, okay, but I'm just going to do this. Note 45, let's see how they translate it. And when you recite the Quran, we place a hidden veil between you and those who believe not in the hereafter. Um, and then 40, Oh, this was 46, sorry. If, uh, was it 40, what? It was 45. Okay, and then 46, and we've placed coverings over their hearts so that they did not understand it, and in their ears, deafness, and whenever they mention the, your Lord's name in the Quran, they turn their backs in aversion. Okay. So, وَإِذَا قَرَأْتَ الْقُرْآنَ جَعَلْنَا بَيْنَكَ وَبَيْنَ الَّذِينَ لَا يُؤْمِنُونَ بِالْآخِرَةِ حِجَابًا مَسْتُورًا There is a, a, a discussion in Islamic sources in 45 whether this applied only to the Prophet that it's telling the Prophet that when you recite the Quran that Allah brings a veil of protection between you and those who do not believe or whether this applies beyond the Prophet. Um, and what does it mean? Because we know that there were times where the Prophet was reading the Prophet and he was physically assaulted and beaten. So it is not talking about a veil of physical protection. I, I'll tell you what I think it means in the interest of time, because we can go back and forth of who said what and so on. When you read the Quran, I believe that when it says, be, between you all those who don't believe the hijab is a hijab of against shayateen uh, and their whisperings it's a hijab against shayateen and ins and jinn 
and their influences as it's a hijab against evil. My journey has convinced me that in fact when you read the Quran and, and the more you read it, leave alone of course memorizing it, an actual veil, it's an, like an energy veil, envelops you that protects you from all types of influences that would penetrate and influence your, you want to call it psyche, your soul, your heart, your spirit, um, but even the space around you. I've entered spaces without anyone saying anything. I immediately know that this space, a lot, there's a lot of Quran reading or a lot of recitation of the Quran. You see it. it it's so clear. And I've entered spaces where um, I knew that just there's there's no protection, you know. It just a place that's thoroughly vulnerable to all types of influences. It's like being vulnerable vulnerable to radiation. There's no radiation protection in that place, and I think that that's why it's because the Quran points to this in several spaces and places. One of them is this. Um, okay, let, let's stop here and pray Maghrib. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. What time is it? 9.30. Okay, so we're, we're not going to finish Surah Al-Isra' tonight. Um, Which, uh, I mean, I don't know uh, how is it going to be possible to finish the Quran in a year, <laughs> but um, it's okay. Allah will provide. Inshallah. Grace said, "It's okay. Allah will provide." Um, Okay, so let's go on for a little bit and then uh, we'll, we'll stop and continue Tuesday. Um, yeah, it, uh, it's, not, it's not good to, because this is the only opportunity to, and uh, if, I, if I don't cover the things that I need to cover, they're not, you know, only Allah knows when someone else can take this journey. Okay. So we said that notice 
and, and this is something that I'm gonna, inshallah, um, try to bring together at the end. But Surah Al-Isra doesn't just lay commandments like positive laws and and approach the issue of ethics that way. But you will find that whenever the Quran deals with an ethical issue or an issues or a matter of ethical principle, that the Quran will always intertwine it to to matters of aqidah, to matters of basic belief. Because the whole trajectory of the Quran, that moral principles as, as commandments disconnected from their theological roots are ineffective. They, 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 because then ethical principles in fact become as if law and as if positive legal commandments. And, it, and positive legal commandments always beg the question of, um, well, are the are they continually valid? Are there exceptions to them? Um, what authority do they have? Do and that's the the problem when you do not differentiate between ethical principles and legal commandments, as we will see inshallah later on when we get to the parts of the Qur'an where it deals with legal commandments and see the difference in the way that it deals with positive law as opposed to ethical principles. Okay, so after giving us a set of ethical principles, the Surah Al-Isra moves on to inform our attitude towards creation and that our attitude towards creation itself is a matter of ethical ethical principle that all of creation is in a state of tasbih yusabbih muhamdih so a state of tasbih and tahmid which means that whatever whichever way you deal with this creation must always be through the prism of Allah's permission, Allah's license, because if you go beyond Allah's permission, then you are transgressing. And transgressing means if sat fil ard, which is what we started the entire surah with. And then the the world is not just the material world, but in the same way that there is the ethereal element of 
the reality of things that you do not comprehend, the tasbih and tahmid of nature, there is also the reality of, if, if you want, if you will, alam al-ghayb, where if you read Qur'an or you anchor yourself in the Qur'an, there is a hijab mastur, a level of protection, and a level of protection against everything that Adam al-Iman represents. Um, okay. نحن أعلم بما يستمعون به إذ يستمعون إليك وإذ هم نجوى إذ يقول الظالمون إن تتبعون إلا رجلا مسحورا the, the only the, this is 47 the thing you wanna or 46 47 um, the thing I wanna point out about this let me see how they translate it Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I I uh, I skipped an ayah. It's it's okay because it's not, there's nothing uh, there's nothing for me to say about it. Um. Okay. So the the thing I want to point out about about forty seven is that. Yastamuna il. يَسْتَمْعُونَ إِلَيْكُ وَإِذْ هُمْ نَجْوَى That they listen to you but they're not they're, they're not really listening because they already listen as وَإِذْ هُمْ نَجْوَى means as they're talking to each other they're already have their minds made up and they are already setting their own narrative as to how they're going to react to that revelation. And they, of course, then they, they say you are, they, they, this man is, a, a, this man meaning the Prophet is enchanted or bewitched, um, not in control of his faculties, in other words, But the important point that as Surah Al-Isra walks us through like different, if you will, different visuals of um, uh, practices that are not morally upright, is that often people in the same way that the Surah Al-Isra told us, don't talk about what you do not know. And that you are responsible for the way that you use your senses, the way you use your ears, the way you use your eyes. Here is a living example of misuse. You are listening but you're you're not listening to learn anything or to even ponder or think about anything but you are 
simply listening as a mere formality. You are listening to rebut. You are listening to argue against. So, izhum najwa means they're literally, as they're listening, they're already they're already setting up their response, their rebuttal. And this is a very powerful image because it's not just the way these people were reacting to the Prophet but how often do human beings deal with things that are not familiar to them or things that they don't want to believe in or things that they want to argue against in, in that fashion. And one of the things that you learn in Talabul Ilm is that, and this I've always been struck by this because of it was developed centuries ago, and again, it's an earmark of civilization. That you were in 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 the books of Talabul Ilm, you are taught that it is bad manners to speak as you're listening to an argument even if it's an argument even if you are in debate with non-muslims so it's not becoming of a muslim to to engage in a debate with a christian or jew or whoever and as they are saying whatever they're saying you're talking to your fellow muslim about what you don't like in other words, a proper manners, it's like, I, I, when I had the teacher once who explained it to say, uh, I, I, I mean, of course, we, we said, well, why is it wrong? You know, if, and he said, well, you know, it's like burping in public, burping loudly, in other words. That it is, if you are, if you engage in the process, even if it's a process of debate, the, there, there are manners to that process. And the process is that when it's time to listen, you listen. And when it's time to speak, you speak. That it is unbecoming of a Muslim. And I even, uh, I, I asked, I said, well, would a Muslim interrupt and he's in debating Christians or Jews and he said no a Muslim would not interrupt I mean very interesting that these are ethics and virtues that were developed in our civilization centuries ago uh, in fact it was even told to me that it is not becoming of the dignity of a Muslim that People who interrupt means that they're not sure of their knowledge. And if you're not sure of your knowledge, then go away and study. Then you shouldn't be debating. That people who interrupt are people who are insecure about their knowledge. And I was, this always struck with me that if you're not sure of your knowledge, then you shouldn't be debating and go, go away and study. Because um, I actually took it literally and took it to heart. And it, I mean, it developed into obsession about learning, it's true, but um, but it's quite remarkable because I've, I've never even 
in, in, you know, in, in re reading the ethics of so many cultures and so much, so many historical societies, I've, I've never seen that level of refinement uh, in any other tradition. Okay. Um, Okay, 48, I don't have anything to say about it. Um, 49 and 50. وَقَالُوا إِذَا كُنَّا عِظَامًا وَرُفَاتَنَا إِنَّا لَمَبْعُثُونَ خَلْقًا جَدِيدًا قُلْ كُونُوا حِجَارَةً أَوْ حَدِيدًا أَوْ خَلْقًا مِمَّا يَكْبُرُ فِي صُدُورِكُمْ This goes on to 51. فسيقولون من يعيدنا قل الذي فطركم أول مرة فسينغضون إليك رؤوسهم ويقولون متى هو قل عسى أن يكون قريبا the, 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 the part here is again um, or say well how is Allah going to bring back creation and the response was كونوا whether you are stone or iron or whatever you think is a big deal. Although the you know commentaries don't say much about this verse, but it's it's always been, struck me as um, very interesting. It's let's say kuno hijara or hadid. It's literally as if Allah is saying the reality of your flesh as your state of being, that you exist in flesh, and that you think it is a decisive transformation of the nature of things for that flesh to then rot and to become dust. But in from the divine perspective, God could have very well made you creatures of stone, moving living stone, or moving living iron, steel. These things that seem, these laws of nature that seem so remarkable in your psychology, in a different reality, are remarkably unremarkable. This goes back to the entire debate about the hereafter and our being in the hereafter. We have no idea what our resurrection in what form will be because we have no frame of reference for that reality. But the, don't, you know, it's easy to pass over a remark like that in the Quran But the Creator could have, in fact, made us of very different material. 
and it would have been a non-issue. Yakburu fi sudurikum. Whatever, what is, how did they say? Oh, the Tzadik Quran translated it, or some other created thing more difficult to resurrect in your mind. Which is, we translate like something that is in your mind impressive or something audacious, something big. Um, if you study the Quran enough, you're always struck by the fact that Allah constantly, time and time again, reminds us that the way that we perceive reality is thoroughly a product of what we are. That we don't see absolutes because what we consider absolute is very different than what the divine would consider an absolute. Okay. Um, so in like Usim fifty one, just interesting how they try to uh, they will shake their heads at the no, it's not shake their heads. Uh like Usim is like um when you talk to someone and they say, uh, when is that? That that's like when you tilt your head like that. It's a it's a remarkable again, visual by the Quran. It's like you, you're going to talk to them about the hereafter and they're going to like, you know, make, make a face at you and, and tilt their head like, are you serious? Okay, when is that going to happen? Um, it's, a, it's a living image. I mean, you can see people doing that. and say, really? When is this hereafter? Okay, we're going to stop at 54, by the way. Um, the day that you are resurrected and you will think that you were dead for a short time, you're not going to have a sense. Once we die, our sense of time becomes materially different in the world of Berzakh. Um, and according to some traditions, the part of punishment is that your sense of time becomes prolonged in a state of barzakh. Okay. Okay. إِنَّ الشَّيْطَانَ كَانَ لِلْإِنسَانِ عَدُوًّا مُبِينًا Now, notice 53, while it took us to issues of perception, issues of belief, 
Then it came back to a moral point, an ethical point. are all of God's creatures, not just the believers. Tell them, advise them. When they speak to choose the path of virtue, the path of beauty. It's a choice. You could choose, it's more exciting to talk about bad things. It's, it's more entertaining, no question. To talk about how people are stupid, how people are ignorant, how people are ugly, how people are stinky, how people are, I don't know about stinky, but you know, I just added that. Uh, uh, you know, how, how people are at fault, how people are, whatever. It's more entertaining. But the harder choice is to choose the path of beauty, the path, in a word, the path of kindness, to emphasize the good not the bad. Inna shaytana yanzahu baynahum. Inna shaytana kana insani aduwan mubina. Around here in, in the Usuri circles, I always talk about devil attacks. For, for those of you who've asked me about devil attacks, ponder this verse. Why select the path of kindness and the path of beauty and the path of virtue in speech? Because whenever you choose the other path, you can count shaitan, doesn't just mean the big shaitan, the big Satan, but Satan and Satan's progeny, in other words, all the demons that are out there. Demons that are out there will use your choices to nurture discord and hostility. And the obvious point that the, the, the demonic is your enemy, but Imagine if you know that when people are tested, people become testy, right? You put, you put stress on a bunch of dogs, they snap at each other. If people are tested, they get snappy and irritated. 
And when they get snappy and irritated, the temptation is to snap at one another and express irritation at one another. Now imagine if these Muslims, the command for Hijrah is going to come. It hadn't come yet. But as they left all their property behind, and back then, you know, there were no banks where you can transfer your balance to the place you're going. Uh, it, it's what you could carry, and if you couldn't carry it, um, and if your money, you, you had entrusted your money was a money keeper or a money lender, that who's not a Muslim, they're not going to give it to you. And, and in fact, that's what happened. A lot of Muslims had to leave Mecca without their money. So they're, they're traveling, many of them absolutely destitute. And they're going to Medina, where they're going to basically be refugees with, with all these people that they don't know. They, they haven't met before, they haven't talked to before. Do you, can you imagine how important it is that people watch what they talk about? Because if they don't, the entire process is going to become disastrous. Because they're all going to be talking about each other. They're all going to be talking about who did this and who did what and who got what and who got, you know... They're under a lot of stress. And it and to put it even more bluntly, teach yourself not to be entertained by ill talk. It, it's a it's a habit. It's like every I mean if, at first Ill talk is entertaining, but then if you refrain from it and you force yourself to not do it, eventually ill talk becomes very uncomfortable. And it's not just un not entertaining, but it just becomes like you, like you feel like you want to take a shower. Um, We're going to stop here, but remember, Surat al-Isra is not just giving you advice. Surat al-Isra is giving you a constitution that had a lot of foundational groundwork we've talked about in the Surah we discussed, and that now is the transformative moment So, to put it quite simply, it is not just whether you're going to believe that the Prophet ﷺ went from Mecca to Jerusalem to the heavens, but are you going to live up to this morality? Or is this the path not for you? Or this path not for you? And that's why Surah Al-Isra there, there is a tradition that said that the Prophet ﷺ would read Surah Al-Isra every night, would recite it 
in in either in the, the Sunnah prayer after Isha or in some reports in Isha prayer. But I think modern Muslims have forgotten how pivotal and transformative Surah Al-Isra is. Every verse in Surah Al-Isra is telling you about an essential building component for what we term an Islamic life. You've all heard the Islam the expression Islamic way of life. Well, but Islamic way of life is not about I'm sorry, but it's not about whether you wear wear a beard or wear hijab or whether you know it's not about the optics. It's about this. This is what the Islamic civilization was built upon. This ethical manifesto. So the idea that someone, you know, prays, prays, fard, prays sunnah, goes to umrah, goes to hajj, but then is cruel to his parents or to her parents is a complete disconnect. It's a moral disconnect. It cannot be. Okay, um, let's stop here and inshallah we'll continue Surah Al-Isra on Tuesday. What time is it now? Huh? Okay, so it's a good, it's 10 o'clock. It's a good stopping point. I, I wanted to finish Surah Al-Isra tonight, but uh, everyone here keeps telling me not to rush. So I'm also trying not to rush. And Okay, alhamdulillah. Come give closing uh, goodbyes. The, 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 you know, the, the dua and the blessings and the... Okay. Alhamdulillah. Thank you so much for an amazing session. This was, um, I, I was like cheerleading. This was really great. And I, I'm so happy that you actually are not going to rush because... Um, this is such an important surah, but um, so I know I've already started collecting questions, so keep your questions. Inshallah, we'll have enough time to cover them. Um, I just I want to, again, thank um, Jenna for sharing about Palestine and ask people to please pray, please donate, please do what you can, and um, yeah, and we'll see you on, on Tuesday. Pray for Sheikh that he gets some sleep, and... Um, that inshallah we'll we'll have an amazing session on Tuesday, inshallah. inshallah. So okay. Thank you. Thank Salaam you everybody. Alaikum. Salaam alaikum.